Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week we meet the first woman to serve in the role of President of the UK Supreme Court, Baroness Hale. It did feel pretty momentous. But you couldn't hear a pin drop in the court. It was absolutely packed, but everybody was listening very, very hard. And the only sound that there was while we were in the room was when I announced that it was the unanimous decision of us all. And then there were gasps. Plus, groundbreaking photographer Tyler Mitchell on his meteoric rise after shooting both Beyoncé and Vice President Kamala Harris for the cover of Vogue. I like to think that when you look at, you know, a magazine cover that I do or sort of a, a gallery exhibition or a museum exhibition or a film work, that you sort of see my voice in it. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Marcus Hippie. We begin the show with a recap of what we know now that we didn't when the week began. Here is Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller with what we learned. We learned this week that the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles does not know enough about the early history of powered flight. The Buckeye State unveiled new license plates declaring Ohio birthplace of aviation, with that slogan depicted on a banner flying behind a representation of Flyer 1, the pioneering aircraft built by Wilbur and Orville Wright, bicycle mechanics of Dayton, Ohio, and stick with us, this is worth it eventually. However, fooled by the fact that Flyer 1 had propellers at the rear and ailerons at the front, Ohio's cartoonist placed the banner not in the right place, but the wrong one. Hey, just getting started. Arguably more amusingly, we learned that this mishap had reignited Ohio's rivalry with North Carolina, vis-a-vis which is the real birthplace of the aeroplane. For while the Wrights were assuredly from Ohio, they first took Flyer 1 airborne in 1903 near Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And we learned that as social media chortlers piled in on Ohio's drafting error, North Carolina's Department of Transport was unable to rise above joining the mockery, tweeting as follows, as read by Monocle 24's state rivalries desk chief, Christy Evans. You'll leave Ohio alone. They wouldn't know. They weren't there. And that is Ohio's official state rock song, Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys, as played by the Ohio State University marching band in the background. Some of us do our research. We also learned, and conclusively so, that if people are not enticed by the offer of a free, safe protection against the worst ravages of a potentially fatal disease, they're not going to be enticed by much. Boffins at the National Bureau of Economic Research in the US. Actually, can we have a round of applause for the word boffins? It's a good word, is boffins. Boffins. 
The friendless poindexters at the NBER, we learned, have been having a look into vaccine incentives. In various places around the world, these have included, but been by no means limited to, cash, lottery tickets, concert tickets, holiday vouchers, a chance to win a car in a raffle, beer, marijuana, fishing licenses, pickled herring, popcorn, chickens, and in Finland... Buckets. Here is Monocle 24's Bucket Desk Chief, Marcus Hippie, explaining the last of these with all the innate and irrepressible exuberance for which his people are famed. I am from Finland. We are very fond of buckets in Finland. Nothing brings us greater joy than buckets. I'm right now beside myself with delirium merely thinking about my bucket. Anyway, we learned from the NBER's report that none of it makes much difference, so we would appear to have learned a reiteration of the lesson that there is no reasoning with the unreasonable. That said, upon scrutinising the fine print of the NBER's conclusions, we learned that they'd only scrutinised one region in California, where one possibly clinching sweetener had not been offered. Everybody loves buckets. They should promise them buckets. But we learned that opportunities await the vaccine hesitant in the United States, other, of course, than the opportunity for one of those ruinously expensive stays in hospital upon which Americans insist. Edgy. Yes, if you are sceptical of evidence and unwilling to act in the public good, you can be a police officer in Florida, where you might one day even feature in a whimsical news review such as this, should you, for example, end up in a freeway chase with a naked drunk on a Segway with a stolen alligator under one arm, which is the kind of thing which does seem to happen in Florida to a perhaps disproportionate extent. Ron DeSantis, governor of the, and finally, state, will even pay you to move there. Our $5,000 bonus, that applies to anyone. I mean, you know, if you're in NYPD and you're not getting the support you need and you, you're qualified, you come down here, you're going to get a bonus because we've got your back and it's a way to say thank you. $5,000, you could buy a lot of buckets with that. we learn that there is one jurisdiction on earth clearly even less fussy than Florida about who it hires to protect and serve. It is the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, designated as of this monologue the Florida of India, where the local wallopers arrested three Kashmiri Muslim students in Agra for exchanging WhatsApp messages celebrating India's defeat by Pakistan in a cricket match. The trio have been charged with promoting enmity and cyber terrorism. Oh, gone, surely gone, yes, absolutely planned. There are a few things that all concerned should bear in mind here. One, first and foremost, is that this is obviously idiotic and Uttar Pradesh's finest should take a long and rigorous look at themselves. Another is that Pakistan's 10-wicket trouncing of India occurred in a game of T20 cricket, a trivial, footling and undignified barbarism, nothing to do with real cricket, a format of interest only to children and simpletons. 
And another possibly self-interested is that criminalising this kind of behaviour elsewhere in the world could have woeful consequences for, for example, Australians who find themselves living in England during the Looming Ashes series. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. Next to something else we learned this week, most of us have become accustomed to putting swabs up our noses and down the back of our throats over the past 18 months as we do our bits to help to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But would we be far better off rubbing the swabs over our smartphones instead? For Wednesday's edition of The Briefing, Monocle's health and science correspondent Dr Chris Smith joins me on the line to explain more. Researcher Rod Young, who's at University College London, published a paper recently in the journal eLife where he actually, while he was in Chile, because that's where he did the study because he was originally based there, he was reasoning, well, when we're doing COVID tests, the test swabs are clinical specimens and they require clinical grade reagents and to be handled in a clinically high grade way. That's very expensive. Is there a better way of doing this that's cheaper but as good? And so he thought, well, since mobile phones spend enormous amounts of time in our hands and also very close to our faces and particularly very close to our mouths and noses where COVID lurks and comes out of and that's chiefly how it spreads, perhaps what's lurking on your mobile phone would be a good proxy for the infection status of the mobile phone owner. So they did a very basic study. I mean, a pretty large study in the respect they studied lots of people. And they had the gold standard, what we regard as the gold standard, they had the COVID diagnosis from PCR And they then swabbed the phones and looked to see how often, when a person was COVID positive, so was their phone. And the answer is it's about 80% of the time. So four-fifths of the time, if a person is infectious for coronavirus infection, you can pick it up on their phone. And the critical thing is that a phone is not a clinical specimen. It doesn't require clinical-grade reagents, which are identical, actually, to non-clinical-grade reagents. They just have a higher price tag because of the way they're handled and, and the certification applied to them. And what he's saying is, well, that's actually better than the performance of a lateral flow test. And therefore, perhaps we should add this to our arsenal of, of testing algorithms, which would be cheap, practical, very sensitive, and mean that we have another way of doing mass screening for coronavirus. Sounds very good. Are there any downsides? Well, obviously, if you don't have a phone, that's not going to help. So I suppose one downside is is that the other downside is it's not perfect, but then no test is. It's going to miss about one case in five. But then so do lateral flow tests. In inexperienced hands, we think lateral flow tests may miss as many as one in two positive samples. So therefore, the, the downsides are more minimal in comparison to what we already have. So this seems like quite a good approach, actually. And would this approach also help to detect other viruses? Well, I did ask him that because we had a conversation about the work. And and this is just a starting point. At the moment, it's convenient for using this to detect things like coronavirus that we're wanting to do screening for. But the way in which these samples are collected, the way in which they're processed, admittedly by PCR and therefore in a laboratory. So there is a time delay to getting the results. But certainly you can recover other things from phones as well. And really, this builds on an emerging body of research where people are looking at how people use their phones, how they interact with their phones and therefore 
what is on your phone. And it really is a cross-section, not just of, of respiratory viral infections, but your entire microbiome and your microbiome being the fingerprint that's unique to you that it is. You can get quite a lot of information off of a phone about a person, including their, their, their health status in general. So it could be extrapolated beyond just coronavirus, yes. Absolutely. So this approach is cheaper, it's easy to do as well, it's much pleasant for everyone. Do you think we might see the end for nasal swaps one day and more smartphone tests then? Well, I think it's horses for courses, Marcus, to be honest with you, because there is no replacement for actually testing the individual, making sure that uh, your diagnosis is correct, because whenever we get a positive for anything, we always confirm and corroborate it. There is a slim chance that someone else could have picked up your phone and contaminated it. So if you got a positive off the phone, one would always want to check it. So I don't think this is in any way going to replace the near nasal biopsy that most of us are enduring when we go and have these COVID tests uh, any time soon. But it's an additional thing that could be used and could be used for useful screening and seems to be reasonably sensitive as a marker for who's got it. That was Marcos Health and Science Correspondent Dr Chris Smith speaking to me earlier this week. We also learned this week of the UK government's annual fiscal plans. Monocle's Alexis Self sent this report on the 2021 budget. I call the Chancellor of the Exchequer to make his budget statement. Madam Madam Deputy Speaker, I've heard your words and those of uh, Mr Speaker. I have the greatest respect for you both and I want to assure you that I have listened very carefully to what you have said. It used to be that the only thing you could definitively predict about the Chancellor of the Exchequer's annual budget was the photo call. Today, the diminutive incumbent Rishi Sunak stood in front of Number 11 Downing Street, holding aloft a battered red briefcase in the manner of a little boy on his first day of big school. But whereas the contents of that leather box would once have been a closely guarded secret, this year's have been leaked through the press and on social media for weeks. Spoiler alert. We knew that the government would raise the minimum wage and remove a pay freeze for public sector workers. We also knew it would cut universal credit, a social security payment, and raise the national insurance tax, which contributes to the UK's state benefits and health service. At first glance, these four headline pronouncements seem to signify the delicate balancing act involved in responsible fiscal policy. Give two and take two away. And fit with the government's much-vaunted levelling-up agenda to spread economic prosperity beyond London and the southeast of England to communities which feel left behind. Here's Sunak defending his agenda before the House of Commons. Because for too long, far too long, the location of your birth has determined too much of your future. Because the awesome power of opportunity shouldn't be available only to a wealthy few, but be the birthright of every child in an independent and prosperous United Kingdom. But when you consider that UK inflation rose by 3.2% in the year to August 2021, the largest figure ever recorded, and look a bit closer at who these cuts and rises will affect, this budget isn't about levelling up so much as holding down. (laughs) 
The level of taxation in the UK has been among the lowest in Europe for decades. And Sunak believes that continuing this is the most effective way to encourage growth. But the pandemic caused a gargantuan hit to the public finances. The problem is, as inequality widens and the cost of living increases, those earning the median wage or below now also carry the highest tax burden since the Second World War. At the same time, the top rate of income tax has remained the same, with the government seemingly refusing to countenance a wealth or asset tax. Here's what Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, standing in for Labour leader Keir Starmer, who tested positive for COVID this morning, had to say. And the arrogance, after taking £6 billion out of the pockets of some of the poorest people in this country, expecting them to cheer today for £2 billion given to compensate. In the long story of this parliament, never has a chancellor asked the British people to pay so much for so little. The combined fortune of UK billionaires has increased by 22% to £597 billion since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. On Monday, a group of 30 British millionaires wrote an open letter to the Chancellor expressing their desire for a tax on the richest 1%, those worth £3.6 million or more, a cohort which includes Sunak, saying it was they who should pay for the COVID recovery, not nurses and teachers. But it's not just the uber-wealthy who seemingly benefited from the pandemic. House prices, already exorbitant in the UK, have increased by 13% since March 2020, making property ownership even more inaccessible for those without assets. For those without assets, read The Young. Britain's youth already suffered restricted opportunity, political alienation and economic disadvantage before the pandemic. Their sacrifices over the past year belied their relatively low physical risk from the virus. It wouldn't have been churlish of them to expect a greater reward today instead of the rise in national insurance which will hit them hardest and benefit them the least. Britain is a greatly divided nation, politically, generationally and economically. Almost the only thing the government got right during the pandemic was the radical furlough and self-employment support scheme policy. Sunak's refusal to countenance similarly radical proposals in order to redress deep-seated inequalities proves that, like the budget photo call, this government's levelling up agenda is merely a pose. That was our very own Alexis Self for Wednesday's edition of the Monocle Daily. Staying with UK politics now for our next highlight, and it comes from last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Baroness Hale is a trailblazer who was the first woman to serve in the role of president of the UK Supreme Court. While judges don't tend to become too well known, her ruling of the Brexit process shot her into the public eye. For last weekend's show, Monocle's Georgina Godwin spoke with Baroness Hale about her new memoir, Spider Woman. It was decided that all 11 justices would sit on that case. Why? Well, uh, we had had an earlier case which was almost more sensitive in that it was in the heat of the debate or argy-bargy that was going on shortly after the referendum. 
And this was the first case brought by Mrs Miller, which was all about whether the government could use its power to unmake treaties to withdraw from the European Union without the consent of Parliament. Government can make or unmake a treaty, but making or unmaking treaties doesn't change the law. And withdrawing from the European Union would automatically have changed the law. So that was what the question was about. And you can imagine a serious constitutional question, uh, which we resolved in favour of Parliament having to okay it. Mm. But we had sat 11 justices for that. And the prorogation case was, if anything, even more important. So we thought we definitely must sit. In fact, we had 12 justices. By 12 is our normal complement. We happen to have a vacancy with the first case. But we have, by statute, to sit an uneven number. So I'm afraid one of our number didn't sit on the case. Mm. Um, but the other reason for having 11 was we did not want anybody to suggest that if the composition of the panel had been different, the result would have been different. Now, they couldn't possibly have done that because we were unanimous, but nevertheless, mm. uh, it, was, it was important that people should understand that that was the view of the highest court in the land. With the earlier case, you talk about the fact that it was a, a learned legal argument and not a debate on the pros and cons of Brexit. Yeah. Now, I don't expect you to answer me, but you know what I'm going to ask. <laughs> You haven't asked. <laughs> Will you answer? It depends what you're going to ask. <laughs> Lady Hale, where do you stand on Brexit? <laughs> Brexit has been done, as I understand it. Yeah. That's where I stand. Thank you. You also write about, and of course, as women, we know this, that it's not particularly important what you wear. I mean, would they be commenting on a judge's tie or whatever? But of oh, course, they did. They did. In the first Mrs. Miller case, uh, there was much comment. You know, I, very, I carefully chose my dresses, a different dress each day, four days of argument we had with the first case, and a different dress and, of course, a different brooch because I have a different brooch on each dress. Nobody commented on my dresses and my brooch. They all commented on Assumption's ties. <laughs> so we cannot generalise. No, no. But was there a significance to choosing the spider brooch? No. I, I regret to say that there wasn't, um, and I do regret to say that, because I think if I'd realised what people would have made of the spider, I might very well have worn that centipede instead, um, <laughs> or this dragonfly. I, you know, what would they have made of that? I have a lot of brooches. The practice of wearing brooches developed when I was in the family division, and we didn't wear robes. We generally wore dark suits or eventually branched out into dark dresses. And my husband started giving me amusing brooches to sort of liven, the, liven my mood if, and possibly other people's moods. And the very first one was actually a spider, an antique silver spider, but there were lots of others, almost all creatures. And they all found their way to the garment where they were most comfortable and that's where they were. So it was the choice of garment that led to the choice of brooch. And I had deliberately chosen a demure little black wool dress. Well, you would, wouldn't you? That's, that's what you'd choose to do something um, as momentous as that. And that dress always had a spider on it. Um, yes. That dress had... Uh, uh, my apologies to the arachnophobes in the room, but um, 
that dress had this rather nice black and sparkly spider on it. But when I got the dress out of the wardrobe that morning, that spider had disappeared. It still disappeared. If anybody knows where it is, please let me know, <laughs> because I'm really quite fond of it. So I sort of rushed to the jewellery drawer and, and sort of grabbed the first thing that came to hand, which was the spider that I was wearing on the day in question. So you have a scorpion brooch? I do have a scorpion brooch, but I've only more recently got the scorpion brooch. The scorpion brooch was made for me by the UK Association of Women Judges as a retirement present. (laughs) (laughs) How did it feel walking out to make that judgment? Well, of course, it's something that I'd done a lot of. You know, I'd walked into that courtroom to deliver our summary for the general public, which is one of our innovations in the Supreme Court. I'd done that on numerous occasions, but it was not usually to a crowded courtroom. And it was a very crowded courtroom. So I suppose it felt, it felt important. It was important. It felt serious. It was serious. My default expression, as you may have noticed, is a smile. Uh, and our chief executive said to me as I was as he was about to open the door for us all to process into court, said, I think, Brenda, it would be as well not to smile. (laughs) (laughs) So if I looked a little stern, that was me trying not to smile. And as I smile to be friendly, I I I don't smile in triumph or anything like that, I smile to be friendly. But yes, it did feel pretty pretty momentous. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't hear a pin drop in the court. It was absolutely packed, but uh, everybody was listening very, very hard. And the only sound that there was while we were in the room was when I announced that it was the unanimous decision of us all. And then there were gasps. Baroness Hale in conversation with Georgina Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. Still to come here on The Curator, we take a closer look at the upcoming New York mayoral elections. We sit down with the groundbreaking photographer Tyler Mitchell and we head to Austria's main cinema hall for a tall story. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. The Urbanist this week took a closer look at the upcoming New York mayoral election, the big issues facing the city, the candidates and the party politics at play. To find out exactly what the role of the mayor's office is in the Big Apple, Monaco's New York correspondent Henry B. Sheridan spoke with Rachel Holliday-Smith, senior reporter for local news website The City. The mayor is responsible for a lot in the city. It's everything from... The budget, a huge budget that's you know bigger than some countries' budgets. Um, it's making sure that you appoint good people for running agencies that cover everything from housing to you know the NYPD. You're somebody who has to sign off on every bill in our legislature, the city council. So a lot of responsibility there, and you're also someone who can set the tone of you know how policy in New York City is exported to other places in the world in the country. So it's 
it's a really big job and you know it's like any small town mayor except your small town is millions of people so it's um, an incredible amount of responsibility and for years the mayor has had a big platform in the United States to again you know export ideas and culture and be a cheerleader for certain things so in this era where we're thinking about climate change and transit policy and policing there's a lot at stake uh, coming up so obviously there's a vibrant ongoing discussion all the time about new york city's needs and concerns but the mayoral race i get the impression does act as a catalyst for a kind of concentrated debate about the the city's priorities this time round what do you see the the main issues and concerns as being there's so many um i think the main one is probably how the next mayor will treat the police department. Um, this has been a conversation for a long time, but especially since last summer and the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, how will a mayor deal with a very stubborn police department that doesn't like to change very much? How will they deal with the budget of the police department? That was a real theme in the primary debates. But also there's so much going on with the post-pandemic, I should not say post-pandemic, I should say pandemic response in New York City, because even though a lot of signs point to the city bouncing back, so many people are hurting, you know, how do you deal with people who don't have access to food, who are dealing with evictions? Housing is always a huge concern pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, as we're going through the pandemic. How will you be able to create new housing Climate change is increasingly becoming a topic in New York. We are a coastal city, like many cities in the country and the world. We are going to have to deal with with that. And we just had Hurricane Ida in New York City come through and kill people as they were in their basement apartments. There are lots of apartments that are low-lying in New York. That is a huge theme for the next mayor. So there there are a lot, a lot of issues. You know, it's I think that I, a theme I've seen as the mayoral candidates were speaking, is how do you deal with a New York that's down on its luck and a bit back on its heels because of the pandemic? But a lot of the existing issues that we had before the pandemic are still here and they come from demand for being in New York, meaning, you know, housing, um, space issues, the crowded subway. So um, it's a tricky balance. Rachel Holliday-Smith, senior reporter for local news website The City, in conversation with Monaco's New York correspondent Henry Rees Sheridan. Next, a look back to last weekend's edition of the Foreign Desk, where the team set their sights on Ouagadougou, where a trial began against those charged with the murder of former president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara. The significance of the trial is not just because of its high-profile nature, but because the crime occurred 34 years ago. It's impossible not to discuss Thomas Sankara and his posthumous popularity without understanding the movement and philosophy of Pan-Africanism of which he was a major adherent of. It's an idea which has meant different things in different times and different places. So to look at what Pan-Africanism means now, Andrew Muller was joined by Professor Rayland Rabaka, Director of the Centre for African and African-American Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Rayland is also the editor of the Routledge Handbook of Pan-Africanism. Andrew began by asking how we would define 
define Pan-Africanism now. Pan-Africanism now means the decolonization, the unification, and the liberation of Africa. When we say Africa, we go back to Wale Shoyinka's conception of Africa, where he says that Africa no longer stops where salt water licks its shores. Africa is wherever African people are. So again, Africa, we have to include the African diaspora. That means those of us who are living outside of the African continent now because of the enslavement of African people, because of colonization. So there are a range of factors that play into why we are conceiving of Africa as something global as opposed to purely continental those 55 countries, if you will. That aspect you mentioned of decolonization, is that a new addition or inclusion to the idea of Pan-Africanism, or has that always been there, at least in the modern post-colonial period? Absolutely. So decolonization is something that really gains a lot of traction coming out of W.E.B. Du Bois's work at the Manchester conference in 1945 certainly picks up even more traction once you get to the Negritude movement. People like Amisa Zaire, Leopold Senghor, Leon Dumas, and Césaire has a book called Discourse on Colonialism. And in that book, he talks about this boomerang effect that some of the racism, the colonialism, this taking capitalism global, those things actually come back to folks that sort of put them out there. It's almost like a karma kind of concept of colonialism. And it's very, very interesting because decolonization says that we actually have to call into question the entire colonial empire and structure before we can ever really unite and liberate African people. I want to come back to that idea of unity, but first of all, to go back to the origins of Pan-Africanism, is there something that you would think of as a recognised founding text or founder of the idea? A lot of people are going to go to the conference on Africa at the end of the 19th century, if I'm correct, about 1893 or so. This happened again outside of Africa. So I want to be very clear. The concept of Pan-Africanism starts in the African diaspora. So it does not start on the African continent. It starts in the diaspora. And then you go to someone like Henry Sylvester Williams, Trinidadian lawyer. And then, of course, taking it over from Henry Sylvester Williams would be W.E.B. Du Bois. They had this incredible Pan-African conference in London in 1900. And at that conference, Du Bois issued this address to the world. And in that, he called for the unification of Africa. He called for serious critiques and resistance to colonialism. But even before he did that, Andrew, Du Bois articulated in this essay called The Conservation of Races in 1897, a concept of pan-Negroism. So before we had pan-Africanism, it started out and they were calling it pan-Negroism, basically essentially understanding the uniqueness of the African experience as we get ready to go into the 20th century. So a late 19th century concept starts in the African diaspora, and then this idea moves to the continent, particularly with Marcus Garvey's Back to Africa movement. So he's going to really sort of popularize this concept, this Back to Africa movement. So do you think the idea of Pan-Africanism either does now or has always meant something different outside Africa than it does inside Africa? Wow, you are going to get us in so much trouble. This is a very 
provocative and controversial question because here's one of the ironies, and I just want to be as intellectually honest as I possibly can be. This has been a raging discussion that has haunted the entire history of Pan-Africanism because, again, it's when a lot of the continental African students went to university, a lot of times they would have to go right back to the colonial empire that was colonizing them. So this is Leopold Sincor goes to the Sorbonne, Kwame Nkrumah, as you know, goes to London and then comes here to the United States of America. So the idea, they sort of realized, wow, the African diaspora is valuing the entirety of the continent, where a lot of continental Africans were thinking at that time, mostly about their specific country. You see, I can't point to a specific country where I come from. So Du Bois and them claim the entire continent, and that idea is novel, is new, and it can also be used as a political and a cultural tool to help to bring about what we're calling right now the African Renaissance. Is it also fair to assume that there are a great many different versions of Pan-Africanism? Because it seems unlikely that, to cite a number of random examples, Haile Selassie, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Julius Nerere and Muammar Gaddafi all had exactly the same idea of it. Oh, there are as many versions of Pan-Africanism as there are jazz music or rock or reggae. So there's lots of different strains of it. I teach it to my students like this. Pan-Africanism... It's like the root, the trunk of a tree, the roots and the fruits of it are going to be very, very different depending on whether you're in Haiti, depending on whether you're in Grenada with somebody like Maurice Bishop, depending on whether you're in Guinea with somebody like Sekou Touré, depending on whether you're in Harlem, if you're somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois. And then let us bring up all of the Pan-African feminists, Right. Pan-African womanism, the fact that, again, we have some serious critiques of patriarchy. We have some serious critiques of misogyny going on. And so what I tried to do in my work is to bring an intersectional interpretation to Pan-Africanism, saying that no one black person has a monopoly on blackness. This is what the negritude movement meant by Africanite, uh, the unique humanity, identity and personality of African people. That means that no one group has a monopoly, not anybody on the continent and not one group in the diaspora either. Only collectively, only together can we sort of articulate 21st century versions of what it means to be African in this world. Professor Aylant Rabaka, director of the Center for African and African-American Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, speaking to Monaco Sandra Miller for last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. Still to come here on The Curator, we sit down with the groundbreaking photographer Tyler Mitchell, review the hotly anticipated film Dune, and we head to Austria's main cinema hall for a tall story. Stay tuned. <laughs> You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippi. Next, we turn to the latest edition of The Big Interview. For this week's show, the groundbreaking photographer Tyler Mitchell spoke to Monocle's Robert Bound about his meteoric rise after shooting both Beyoncé and Vice President Kamala Harris for the cover of Vogue. Let's take a listen. I like to think, or I like to hope, that all of sort of what I do, whether it's sort of commissioned or personal is in dialogue with one another. So yeah, sure. I mean, I I like to think that when you look at, you know, a magazine cover that I do or sort of a a gallery exhibition or a museum exhibition or a film work, 
that you sort of see my voice in it. So yeah, I would like to think that they're all in dialogue. Of course, different things need, have different sort of boundaries, constraints, needs, wants, but yeah, I like to think that it's all sort of under one roof. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that. It seems you've got a signature style, but it seems to sort of evolve for each individual thing that you do. I get the feeling that you have a very good relationship with your subjects, actually. I mean, there's such a lot of warmth, and we can talk about this in a bit. But it feels like you have a good time making these pictures. Am I am I far wrong? No, not at all. We like to, yeah, we like to have a good time. I mean, I think, like, I'm just trying to create an environment that's, like, as open as possible, you know? I think that, like, the environment I try and create, you know, I have ideas. I like to say that I sort of bring ingredients so to speak but I don't know the quantities of those ingredients for the recipe like I try and leave a little bit of margin and room of open-mindedness to sort of collaborate with the people in front of the camera because it's it's as much their picture as it is mine you know mm-hmm. and I'm sort of creating an aesthetic world but they're you know the the sitters and the people who I work with to make that are also a part of it so so yeah I would say like it's good that that comes across it's good that like when you sort of see like in a lot of my work and I can make you feel good, like the sort of direct gaze into the camera, like the the sort of eye contact made is usually a very like inviting sort of eye contact, I hope, where it's sort of a, it has some sort of potentially enigmatic quality, but it is, it has warmth, like you said. So yeah, I think all of that is what I'm sort of looking for, so like subconsciously, I would say. Yeah. You, you mentioned there, you know, making an environment in which to take pictures and that's such an important part of the photographer's arsenal, isn't it? To be able to create that kind of giving, trusting environment. There's, there's kind of an amount of trust involved, isn't there, in, in allowing someone to take your picture. Is that something, I mean, that's, that's an evolving story, right? But do you have a kind of, you seem to have a, a lovely way about you, but <laughs> is, that, is that where it sort of starts from? I mean, yeah, that is sort of where it starts from. I think I'm like, it's something to be taken seriously, you know, like it's something to just be taken with gravity. Like I try and maintain that, you know, on everything I do. I don't know if I can like put my finger on what it is, you know, but I think it's also good that like I've been making images for quite some time. So the people like the sitters, like I show them some of my work and they start to get an idea of like what it is that I do. Or if I ask to do a shoot with them, then they sort of might even have an idea already. And so then they sort of know and then we and then the, the the relationship starts off with that knowledge and then it goes from there. I think every photographer sort of has their own approach to this, you know. When I first saw your work a while back was whether you you're capturing a world or whether you're creating a world because you're not a documentary photographer, but you still you're still capturing kind of these moments of intimacy, of love, of of, of closeness, of dialogue. Are you stealing something from the world or are you making something new, I wonder? Uh, I think a bit of both. Like, the funny thing is, like, it sort of walks this line of, like, documentary and staged. Like, for sure, there, like you're saying, there, there are staged elements. But I sort of like to think that I'm doing both. Um, because, I mean, when you see when you see sort of the scenes depicted in my images, the my sitters, so to speak, are sort of playing on a narrative that is real, you know, whether that is sort of flying kites or enjoying enjoying sort of interpersonal relationships in a park or an outdoor space like all of those moments are sort of you know there are moments that happen in real life and then there are also moments that I've constructed in that particular moment for that photograph 
Um, and I think that construction doesn't take away from the sort of reality of the moment. Do you shoot all the time? I mean, you've got a phone in your back pocket and, and I'm sure you're making notes, as it were, photographic notes and things you like and things you dig and things that are constructed photographs. Is that how you think of it, that every image every image is, is kind of worth its place on your camera roll? It just takes, you, you know, you just delete what you delete in the edit. Actually, no, I'm pretty like considered when I when I shoot like I even like my camera roll is like a very different sort of like thing than sort of my like photographic practice. Like my photographic practice is like a very focused thing. Mm -hmm. I'm very much like sort of gathering references. I'm thinking about scenes. I'm thinking about I'm sort of dreaming up frames. I'm sort of sketching ideas i'm looking at movies i'm researching and then i'm going out into the world and creating these things so it's sort of two different things like even though you know that accessibility to shoot always on the iphone is there for sure i don't think that i in my mind connect the two um yeah if that makes sense and i think i i think i like that it's kept separate because for me personally it's almost like making images for me is almost like the act of being a director of a movie in a way it's about doing the research coming up with an idea and being very focused and decisive about it and then going and going and trying to like do service that idea the best way you can you know the photographer Tyler Mitchell speaking to Monaco's Robert Bound for the latest episode of The Big Interview. To hear the conversation in full, head to our website, monaco.com forward slash radio. Staying with Rob now for a highlight from this week's Monocle on Culture. One of the biggest cinema releases of the month has been the hotly anticipated Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. It's a film of epic proportions that tells the story of Frank Herbert's 1965 sci-fi novel of the same name. A story about dueling houses over the planet Arrakis for a substance called spice that can fuel interstellar travel and prolong human life. The film has an all-star cast, including Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Stellan Skarsgård and Oscar Isaac. On this week's Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound was joined by the film critics Simran Hans and Karen Krusanovich to review Dune. Somebody said to me who saw it very early on, it's great until it isn't. Right. <laughs> Another one said, it's really pretentious. And I thought, great. You know, I went to this, I had to see it. I didn't want to know anything about it, so I did a lot of my research for this show. In the taxi this morning. Yes, the taxi this morning. <laughs> okay. I didn't realize it was part one of two. But I'm thinking, this is part one and they haven't filmed the second part? Yeah, so this is done on a kind of in an old fashioned way. This yeah. isn't kind of prequelized out of its yeah. out of all out of its life. How how does that work? I mean, I guess they're just seeing if anyone likes this one, are they? Is that, is no, that that's exactly the right. Thing? That's exactly yeah. right. They're talking to one of the executives, and she was saying, well, we're not, we're not going to rely just on box office returns, but it looks as if it's cleared its production budget already globally, and now it needs to make up, because you know it's production budget, mm -hmm. and then again for marketing to, to make the sequel. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's in. Also... This really isn't a standalone film, I don't think. No, not at all. There were lots of part of the book, by the way. I mean, there were lots of Dunes. I mean, there's Dune, which sold 12 million copies, by the way. So it was a massive. It was one of the biggest-selling sci-fi novels ever and all the rest of it, one of the biggest books, biggest best-selling books ever. But there were lots of bits to it. I think there were kind of six, maybe, books in the Dune series. So there's plenty to play with. It's, mm. it's very capable of being a kind of Star Wars kind of mad universe like that, which keeps on keeps on giving, Karen. It could keep on giving. Yeah, but then you think about Master and Commander. I mean, there's a million of those books, and they made one movie by condensing about five. Yeah, so bit of a shame. Yeah. 
That's well, quite a good film. One thing that they kind of say about June, they, the people who love <laughs> June. Um, the, Don't the, other, the, other the June fans. <laughs> the people who are, who are sort of really passionate about this series is they kind of, to me, they overstate, although I, that, it would be unfair to say overstate because I haven't read the books, but they kind of emphasise how dense the text is and how complex the story is. And I don't doubt that for a second, but what really kind of struck me about this was a sort of stripped-back simplicity of both the visual world that um, Villeneuve creates. It's so kind of clean and immersive and clear in the way that sort of set up. And just sort of how legible it was really mm. um it is a long film and you know there are kind of lots of i guess complicated politics between the different houses the house of atreides and the house of harkonnen um good colonialism versus bad colonialism i guess yeah. if you want to simplify it but i could understand what was going on i could locate myself in the film and and i think that is the sign of good storytelling mm. you're right and i think that's a great word for it legibility right with the story which is convoluted and sort of baroque in in its telling in the novel and in david lynch's film where you kind of don't quite know what's going on quite, quite a lot of the time is this helped by the production design um and Completely. stuff because it's a beautiful looking thing isn't it it's a real artifact the, the costume design the set design the shots no, com- completely. As someone says, clean and beautiful. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, I mean, I mean, Mark Kermode was commenting about how many art directors must have worked on the sandworms alone. And granted, <laughs> really, when you see these things being being put up, maybe you've got concept artists. You usually have a series of concept artists. You've got art directors. You've got assistant art directors. Then you've got the VFX people. I mean, it's a huge team of people. So you can't make this film without the production design. You really can't. Because so it, Geiger, H.R. Geiger, who went on to do Alien yeah. uh, for Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. sort of created that that worked on the Jodorowsky's Jodorowsky. Dune and that's amazing and that's sort of there are a lot of you know yeah echoes mm-hmm. of I guess of that but this is a more simple looking thing isn't it but I have to say that people always go well it's not like the book well it's a different medium number one yeah I mean you can never get the kind of you can never get the kind of detail from a book into a film but the visual shorthand gets as close as you can to that yeah yeah exactly this is they're doing two different things what about Hans Zimmer's soundtrack we talked in the introduction about a film of epic proportions not least the Hans Zimmer's soundtrack Holly and I sat in that IMAX probably with you Simran in that on that and that was monstrous the sound the, the music and the sounds the sounds of the kind of it's almost like whale song isn't it yeah I think like that's another way of conveying the scale, right? Mm. The kinds of sonorous um, rumblings of this desert planet. And I, I just want to go back for a second to, you know, your description, Rob, of, of the plot and the kind of storytelling is bar- well, in the original text is Baroque, because I think visually it's kind of brutalist, right? Mm. The way that the architecture of the planet is, the sort of concrete beiges and greys, a bit Kanye West Yeezy palette, I think. (laughs) Um, But I think, yeah, the the sort of that 60s style brutalism is really interesting given that like the book was written in 65 and it's a futuristic world that looks old. Yeah. Um, and so that gives so it's it this... 20,000 years in the future, supposedly, this film. Exactly, but it, it sort of gives it this timelessness. And I was reading up a little bit about it and, um, you know, I think, I, I hope I'm not butchering this, but I believe that the future that Dune is set in, we've kind of gone full circle with technology mm. and decided 
um, to destroy all of the man-made intelligence and leave that behind. And so I think it's interesting that like the visual world is kind of set in the past, even though it's the future. The film critics Simran Hans and Karen Grisanovich speak into Monocle's Robert Bound for this week's edition of Monocle on Culture. Staying with the silver screen for our final highlights of the show, the Gartenbaukino in Vienna is Austria's main cinema hall. It just underwent a 3.3 million euro revamp and with its iconic New York-style marquee and enduring 1960s interiors, it's used for large-scale film premieres and high-profile retrospectives, which have attracted some of the greatest names in Austrian and world cinema, from David Lynch to Martin Scorsese. Monaco's Alexei Korolev in Vienna brings us this week's tall story. Meine Damen und Herren, guten Abend. Liebe Freunde, liebe Freundinnen, Gäste, Kollegen. You can also stop holding the applause. The annual Viennale Film Festival opened last week with a gala night at the Gartenbau Kino, its home and headquarters for nearly 50 years. Both are incredibly important to Vienna. The festival because it brings a bit of internationalism to a city that is still a little too parochial compared to other European capitals. The cinema, because... It's an institution and it, it stands for a cinema culture that has pretty much died out ever since, that was, that was left to die, literally left to die. The Gartenbau Kino, or simply Gartenbau, was opened in 1960, at a time when dozens of cinemas were being built across Vienna to cater for a growing demand for entertainment. It was a, a big uh, favorite pastime in the in the early 1950s, and uh, there were like uh, 230 cinemas in Vienna in operation, and uh, there's very few of them is still um, uh, kept like they were. Tom Koch is a graphic designer and historian. His latest book, Mid-Century Vienna, shines a light on the largely neglected architecture of their period. The Garten Volcano is a completely different story because it was um, designed by an architect, Robert Kotas, who was uh, uh, famous for Viennese cinemas. He built or remodeled around 40 cinemas in Vienna in, at this time. And um, he was a cinema fan, a movie fan, but also a very technical person. He was very interested in, in all the technical innovations, so he combined this attempt to create a movie experience when you enter the cinema, which can be experience when you when you go to Gartenbau Kino with the foyer and then you go down and you, you come to another room before you enter the, the actual cinema. So um, this was a time when, when um, cinemas were designed to give you a general experience that started from buying tickets to having a time before you start uh, to go to the film or to, to the movie hall. So this is, I think, uh, something that's gone or very, very minimized in today's cinemas. The Gartenbau was always intended as Austria's main cinema, the site of grand premieres and a showcase of the best of film technology and interior design. It was the first Austrian cinema to be able to play large-format 70mm films and is still the country's biggest single-screen auditorium. Uh, my name is Norman Schettler and I am the managing director of the Gartenbau Kino in Vienna, Austria. Mm. The intention was always to have like a, a major representative, um, glowing cinema here for all the big premieres. So it was it was meant to be uh, sort of also a, a focus of, of maybe societal life at, at, at the time. 
But as cinema was and always has been and still is, thankfully, it was also meant for, for just regular people to come. There's a lot of, a lot of big theaters built in that, around that time that were really big places. I mean, even bigger than Gartenbaukino. And this is at a time when Hollywood went really big and they started inventing new techniques to to distinguish them more from television. Television came up in, in the 50s, of course, in the States, and they had to think, okay, what can we do? We have to make things bigger and, and louder and, and stronger and, and, and more unique, I guess. And this theater was built specifically with that in mind. But there were comparable theaters that were built by the same architect, which have all since, you know, been turned into supermarkets or, or multiplexes. And this is the last of its kind. This, for some reason, went relatively unscathed over the, over the decades. On account of its historical, artistic and cultural significance, the Gartenbau was finally given listed status in 2018. And so, even though Norman Shetler disagrees... I would never say yes to that. ...it will remain a beacon of cinema culture in Austria for some time to come. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Monaco's Alexei Korolev in Vienna there. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monaco 24. And thanks for listening.